captain's logs. Han Solo. I'm captain of the Millennium Falcon. This is Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the Federation Starship Enterprise. Listening to Captain's Logs and Lightsabers, part of the Geek News Now Podcast Network. Welcome. This is episode two of Captain's Logs and Lightsabers. If you listened to our premiere episode where Chris and I discussed our histories in the fandom and our top three favorite music and characters, you have our thanks for giving this brand new show a chance. From this episode forward, we'll be settling into what Chris and I expect will be the the format for all of our future episodes. Each episode will feature a brief discussion of the latest news for both Star Trek and Star Wars. We will mostly be sticking to confirmed news stories, but occasionally we might jump into the realm of rumors and speculation. And then secondly, each episode will end with a featured discussion where Chris and I, having watched something from Star Trek and something from Star Wars that have a common thematic element to them, we'll discuss what makes each episode unique, and then we'll compare and contrast the two together. Together and uh, maybe choose which one we like better than the other and why. But first, let's talk the news. Move the ship out of the asteroid field so that we can send a clear transmission. Captain, incoming message. Star Wars The High Republic has arrived as of Tuesday. It's a publishing initiative from Lucasfilm, Marvel, and IDW Comics, as well as Del Rey. All four of these publishers are working together uh, to release a, a new era in Star Wars storytelling that takes place approximately 200 years prior to uh, the beginning of the prequel trilogy. Uh, so in in the High Republic, you're going to have books for adult readers, young readers, teen readers, as well as comics for all ages. Uh, on Monday, before the very first book launched, I got to be uh, watch uh, a Meet the Authors virtual event that was hosted on Star Wars YouTube. The uh, Meet the Authors virtual event was hosted by Kristen Baver from Lucasfilm. And the artists that participated were Charles Sewell, Justina Ireland, Kevin Scott, Claudia Gray, and Daniel Jose Older. Each of these authors were all contacted by Lucasfilm to be part of this publishing initiative. They were asked to develop story ideas for a new era previously unexplored in Star Wars. The authors look to inspiration from everything from Star Wars films to the Dune saga and even Arthurian legend to kind of get the idea of where they wanted to go with this with this publishing initiative. I believe it was Charles Sewell that said that one of the main lines that was inspiration for the High Republic was one from Obi-Wan Kenobi, where he said that for a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the galaxy. So during this time, the Jedi are at their height. It's their golden age. But the authors all ask themselves, what scares the Jedi? And this story is going to play out over three phases over the next several years. It's going to be told partially in books, partially in comics. But the thing is about this this story is you don't need to read everything to get an idea of the full story, but everything that you do read just is going to add color and depth to the story. For more in-depth breakdown of this author event, you can see our full coverage on geeknewsnow.net. Chris, do you do you read books from Star Wars or Star Trek? In terms of the Star Wars books, I never really got into them, and I've always kind of asked myself why, but I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I got into Star Wars a lot later in my life. Like I said in the previous episode, I was 16 when I started to watch Star Wars. So I, there was already a big expanded universe that had already been created, and I never got into it. But I would really enjoy possibly looking into those now, even though they're not ex- the expanded universe isn't really considered part of the canon anymore. Now it's part of you know legends, but they see it still seem like really good, interesting reads and kind of give some background information on some characters that have come into the new mainstream canon, such as Grand Admiral Thrawn. So it's always worth possibly looking into in the future. Jonathan, what I'm really looking forward to about the High Republic is finally seeing a different era of Jedi Knights. I think that will be a lot of fun. Also, 
just the fact that we have more books coming out that we can enjoy and it's kind of be over a different multimedia platform is very intriguing to me. So that's going to be pretty exciting. Do I have any concerns about the books? I just want to make sure that the canon is consistent for the most part. I'm just hoping that it's very well written. That's all I care about. Just and will it will its continuity be con continuous over the the games or the books or the magazines or whatever else the comics whatever else? I just want to make sure that it all sticks together because with a multimedia platform mistakes can happen. So hopefully there won't be too many of those. What I am definitely going to try to do is at least start with the, with the novels. I really am interested in the characters that they had talked about and introduced in those YouTube uh, specials. So really looking forward to this and looking forward to talking about it with you as well. Yeah, we'll definitely want to cover that uh, you know, in a future episode. I am about uh, eight chapters into uh, Charles Soule's novel. I still have a long ways to go. I'm actually trying to finish up one of the other books, one written by Claudia Gray, it's called Master and Apprentice. It tells the story of Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan when Obi-Wan is just 14 years old. So he was just uh, assigned Qui-Gon as his Jedi Master not too long before the events of this book take, took place. So I want to finish that one up first, and then I'm going to dive back into the High Republic novels. Unfortunately, Chris, we have some uh, somewhat sad news to share. Uh, do you want to take this one? Yes, um, it's sad to report that Tom Kane, uh, the voice of Yoda, Admiral Ularan, and the narrator for every episode of The Clone Wars, suffered a stroke in October. Uh, his daughter shared the news recently on his Facebook page. Tom lends his voice to lots of other animated programs. He's also the voice of the Disney monorail and the narrator for Magic Kingdom's Happily Ever After Nighttime Spectacular. As of this recording, Tom has not regained his ability to speak and will start going under intensive speech and occupational therapy. However, his medical team has advised the family that there is a chance he may never regain his voice the way it was before the stroke and may not be able to continue his voice acting career. That's awful. Our thoughts and prayers go out to Tom, his family, and his medical team. So, Jonathan, what are your thoughts about this horrible news? I mean... It's it's going to be so weird, you know, if if Tom Kane doesn't get his voice back because he is he's been so integral um, in and especially the Clone Wars, like you know, like you said, he is the 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 narrator. He's the one that kind of sets up every single episode of the Clone Wars, and I I don't know if he'll be continuing that work with the Bad Batch, which is the next animated series coming from from Lucasfilm and mm -hmm. Star Wars. Uh, it takes place essentially after Order 66. It follows a group of clones who have special abilities or essentially special abilities or mutations uh, that make them unique. All right, so that's that's a bit of a downer. Um, let's move on to something happier. Uh, again, like, like Chris said, you know, our thoughts and prayers do go out to Tom and his family and, and that entire team of medical professionals that's going to uh, work with him and, and hopefully rehabilitate him to the point that he can enjoy the rest of his career. Oh, absolutely. Get better soon there, Tom. Okay, so happy news. This this actually, I I hadn't been keeping track of this, but between the all the series that have aired with Star Trek and all of the feature films, Star Trek is celebrating a huge milestone, and that's 800 combined episodes of television and feature-length movies. It's amazing that something that, that started on television in the 1960s got canceled after three seasons, found life again in the late 1980s, uh, died off again in early 2000s and, and has resumed as of a few years ago. And it seems as though there's no signs of it slowing down. It's, it's incredible. I think. Yes, it absolutely is. I agree with you. It's amazing what this show has done in terms of morphing itself over the 54 plus years. So uh, Chris, what are you most looking forward to in the future plans for Star Trek television? Well, it'll be interesting to see where they go with Discovery for its fourth season. That's one thing that's definitely been interesting about Discovery is when it ends their season, there's always this big question mark of what's going to happen because um, it has some sort of tantalizing little bit that they uh, put together to 
kind of end it and bring people back, which is typical. Michael Burnham in the captain's chair in the finale of Discovery was certainly exciting. So it'd be interesting to see how she works with the crew and what kind of orders she gives and what kind of decisions she's going to make for, for the best of the Discovery crew and the rest of the Federation in that time. So that'll be pretty interesting. Star Trek Strange New Worlds is going to be really cool. Anson Mount has done a spectacular job as Captain Pike. It's just look at all the, the media and the, or I should say social media, the platforms, all the fans that loved him so much that clamored for him to get a show. And CBS apparently listened to that. So we're going to be getting a show that continues on the adventures of the 24th, oh, 24th, 23rd centuries. I'm so used to the 24th century. So that'll be really interesting to see and see how those characters develop it'll be interesting to see what ends up happening with pike in the end because we all know that he ends up getting the exposed to the delta rays and getting the severe radiation burn to being put into the chair and not being able to speak and has to beep for the rest of his life seeing what happens with number one will be kind of interesting because really she was described in the cage basically being a, a human computer she seemed a little bit warmer with what rebecca remain brought to the role in discovery so it'll be interesting to see how she gets developed also kind of seeing how Spock kind of becomes, he goes from that kind of somewhat emotional person we saw in the cage and throughout a little bit of the second season of Discovery and then becoming the really cool, logical, collected Mr. Spock that we see in the original series. Also, I'm very curious to see what kind of characters are going to be cast. Are they going to cast the other characters? Are they going to bring Yeoman Colt back? Are they going to have Dr. Boyce? Uh, a lot of people seem to want Jeffrey Combs to come in as, and play Dr. Boyce. Um, I certainly wouldn't have any issue with that. He's definitely got a long history with Star Trek, and it would be great to see him playing another role. He's an amazing actor. You know, let's see, who else? Uh, who are some of the other characters there? Tyler, the, the navigator. Wonder if they're going to bring him in or not. Uh, there was some talk online that maybe they should bring him in, but actually recast the character as a different uh, ethnicity rather than another white guy on the bridge. You know, so it'll be interesting to see. Plus, I would like to see if they would create more new characters, which I can't see them not doing because every Star Trek series has had their cast of secondary characters in addition to the standard ones. I mean, look at Deep Space Nine for crying out loud, you know. So that'll definitely be – I'm really looking forward to seeing that. Um, Prodigy is going to be interesting because it's they're, it's kind of taking a different leap than the way I thought it would be. With a show like Star Trek Prodigy, I thought that it would be really good as a Starfleet Academy show where they would have one character that they really focused on over the years of Starfleet Academy going on different adventures, things of that nature. But the, the story that they came up with about these uh, these ragtag, lawless teenagers that happen to just find a Starfleet ship, that always kind of confused me. But I'm one of those people that's willing to give different ideas a chance before I go and condemn them. So I'm looking forward to seeing what they come up with that. Plus, we know Kate Mulgrew is going to be joining the cast for that as, as Janeway. So that'll be really cool to see how she hopefully maybe kind of mentors how Captain Janeway or Admiral Janeway will mentor these kids. Maybe they will go from being these lawless teens to actually being respected and actually maybe officially become part of Starfleet. So the sky is the limit with that new show. So we don't have a whole lot of info on it, but I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing where it's going. Star Trek Lower Decks Season 2 hopefully will be fun. Uh, the first season was pretty interesting. For me, the best part about Lower Decks was how much it looked and felt like the Star Trek The Next Generation era. It'd be nice to also see Titan come back with Riker and Troy on board. And just kind of see where the characters go moving forward from there. How about you for Star Trek's television? Going back to what you said about uh, Strange New Worlds... I think it's fantastic how you know the fans of Star Trek have really latched on to uh, Pike as as their essentially their favorite character yes. from Discovery. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, taking a character who had maybe ninety total minutes of screen time, and that may even be generous. Exactly. You know, yes. Captain Pike was introduced in the failed pilot for Star Trek, the original series before William Shatner had been 
cast in the role of Captain Kirk. Uh, and that's where the series had its, you know, three seasons on television. And then, of course, you know, as we know, Pike had been reintroduced in the original series in the in the menagerie. But yeah, I think it's fantastic how everyone has latched on to Anson Mount and his portrayal of Pike in Discovery. Full confession, I am not caught up on Lower Decks. Uh, I watched three of the episodes of the season, so I know I need to go back and and uh, and finish that. But I, I, you know, I really enjoyed what I watched. It, you know, it's it's humorous. It's you know, it's got some nice in jokes and references for longtime Star Trek fans. It's, yes, it's incredible. Absolutely, they, you can tell it's been done by fans without a doubt. Star Trek Prodigy is the animated series that's coming to Nickelodeon, right? Yes. Okay, that's what I thought. Like you said, there's there's not been a whole lot of information about that, uh, other than some basic plot outline. Uh, you know, and of course, we've confirmed the the return of uh, Admiral Janeway to the show, or rather, we've confirmed the return of Admiral Janeway to Star Trek. Yes, yes, that's very exciting to see her coming back. Yes, I agree. So our last bit of news involves Tig Notaro, who is the comedian and actress portraying Jet Reno on Star Trek Discovery. She announced uh, approximately two weeks ago that she's intending to appear in fewer episodes of season four of Star Trek Discovery. And mainly her concern is over her, you know, getting uh, being exposed to COVID-19. How do you feel about Jet Reno? She is one of my absolute favorite characters on Discovery. I'm not going to deny it. Her dry sense of humor and sarcastic comments that she makes just cracks me up on the show. You know, so anytime I see her on screen, I'm just I'm so I just get real warm inside and real excited. I think probably her favorite comment that she ever made was about I think it was to Stamets in season two, where she said something about. He knows how to pilot a ship using stuff that she picks off for pizza, something like that. That was just, that was just gold for me. And, it, and I, I watched some of Tignataro's comedy skits on YouTube, and it seems like that's just the way she is in real life. She's just kind of very dry and, and it's got a, a, a real ease with her sarcasm. And I'm one of those people that loves sarcastic humor. I'm not maybe super good at it, but I try to get to be with it a little bit. Um, I've always been drawn to characters that are kind of sarcastic, like uh, Darlene Connor on Roseanne and Mama from Mama's Family, yes. you know, those kind of characters. So Jet Reno's right up my alley. So <laughs> Now, as somebody who actually had COVID-19 about two months ago, I definitely understand why she's got concerns about that. I know for me in particular, when I had COVID in November, uh, fatigue was definitely probably one of the biggest things that I felt in achiness. So it's not one of the most enjoyable situations to have. And then on top of it, having your coworkers posting pictures online, wearing uh, masks and, and gloves and gowns because they were afraid of being exposed. So that was part of the protocol while I was in quarantine. Wasn't a whole lot of fun either. So I, I can see where she's coming from. It's a very scary virus and everybody reacts to it differently. You know, lucky for me, I, I only I had was what felt like a bad cold, no fever, uh, no respiratory problems, except a very slight cough. The only big thing, the big thing was uh, losing my sense of taste and smell, you know, but it's mm -hmm. it's scary, you know. And then when you have it and then you think, oh, my goodness, did I expose anybody to it? That, those thoughts just start racing through your head. So, you know, Jet Rena or uh, Tignataro, my hat's off to you on that. That makes perfect sense, wanting to protect yourself and protect the people around you. So kudos to you. So what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I echo your thoughts exactly. Uh, you know, her, her sarcasm, her wit is, is a nice uh, breath of fresh air when, it, you know, when she's on screen in Discovery. Yes. And I know we haven't seen a whole bunch of her in the show, but yeah, every time that she's on screen, it's always, it's always fun to watch. And some behind the scenes stuff with her. I know when she has to recite some of the Star Trek techno babble, it, uh, you know, it's, she has a hard time with it mm -hmm. and, you know, <laughs> so I, I wonder if that's part of it, you know, less time on screen, less techno babble. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. She, she's number like, I can see her almost as being like another Scotty in terms of humor and, but also the passion for the job in the way they, they go about doing things. 
Um, they have their own little ways of fixing things and, and speeding up the process or, or whatever, you know. So they're, they're kind of an interesting comparison between the two of them, I think. Don't get technical with me. Logic. It is the beginning of wisdom, Polaris, not the end. The Jedi uses the Force for knowledge and events. All right, so I think we spent enough time on the news, don't you? I think so, sir. You got it. All right. I, I, there's other news stories, but we can always cover those in, in future episodes. Absolutely. Um, none of them. We, you know, we, we got the most important ones. We got it. You got it. All right. Okay. So this is the moment that I know our listeners have been waiting for to really find out what our show is going to be about and what's going to set it apart from other uh, Star Wars and Star Trek podcasts that are out there. Uh, you know, because we cover both, you know, it, it makes sense for us to watch some some content from uh, both Star Trek and Star Wars and then compare them against each other and, and kind of go over our thoughts. Uh, I wanted to start us off with something that's prevalent in both Star Trek and Star Wars that has, you know, that has made an appearance. And not only in Star Trek and Star Wars, it's made an appearance in other forms of, you know, other films and, and media as well. Uh, and that is the classic Akira Kurosawa film, Seven Samurai. So we're going to talk about the episodes of Star Trek and Star Wars that have used Seven Samurai as inspiration for for plot lines and, and episodes in their respective shows. So, of course, you know, any any fan of Star Wars is, is aware that George Lucas was very, very influenced by the early serials like Flash Gordon and others. And he was also, you know, a, a big fan of Akira Kurosawa and used, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot of... Uh, Kurosawa's films as inspiration for uh, for the lightsaber battles and and just the existence of lightsabers in the Star Wars universe. Uh, Chris, do you want to give us a little, just a basic rundown of the plot of Seven Samurai for those uh, of our listeners who are unfamiliar with it? So Seven Samurai is a classic film from Akira Kurosawa that tells the story of villagers of farmers who hire a ronin or a traveling samurai to help them fight back against a group of marauders who freely take their rice and barley yields by force each growing season. These marauders barely leave enough grain for the villagers to survive, let alone enough to sell so they can live comfortably. The samurai train the villagers to build fencing and other fortifications around their village. They also trained the villagers to fight. By the end of the film, the villagers and samurai are able to kill the marauders, but not without several fatalities of their own. Yeah, Seven Samurai is it's again it's a it, you know it's a classic Akira Kurosawa film from I believe 1954. Uh, and if I'm wrong about the year, please forgive me. Uh, but it, it has been you know it's been adapted several times. Most notably, The Magnificent Seven is a Western adaptation of The Seven Samurai, and of course the you know the original Mag Seven has been itself remade already within the last 10 years uh and of course uh, the classic disney pixar's a bug's life is also a seven samurai adaptation in its plot well see that's wonderful i never knew that a bug's life was related to seven samurai so that that's fascinating um one of the major side plots of the film involves one of the seven samurai becoming romantically involved with the daughter of one of the farmers um, which is something that I've seen in a lot of the adaptations of Seven Samurai as well. That's definitely continued through the theme, right? And, and, and in some in some form or fashion, that that uh, that side plot comes into into play. Not necessarily, yes. you know, a romantic relationship, but in some ways, in some form, one of our main characters from the shows becomes. Uh, involved with uh, one of the villagers in some way or form, and of course we'll we'll go over that in in a little bit more detail once we get to that episode. So you might be asking yourselves, what episodes of Star Trek and Star Wars have been inspired by the Seven Samurai? For this discussion, Chris and I watched a season two episode of Star Trek Enterprise, uh, an episode of Star Wars: The Clone Wars, as well as an episode of Star Wars: The Mandalorian. All three episodes that we watched 
have adapted the plot of Seven Samurai for the purpose of, st- of telling the stories they wanted to. Uh, Chris and I are going to discuss the similarities and differences to each other, as well as the similarities and differences to the original source material. So first up, we're going to talk about the Star Trek Enterprise episode, which is an episode from Season 2 called Marauders. Chris, what similarities to the the basic plot of Seven Samurai did you notice in Marauders? Well, basically, the, the, the framework of the story is still in place. You have a group of, I guess, farmers, or in this case, workers, that have a crop that's being stolen at their what they consider their harvest time. But in this, this particular episode, instead of it being a crop, it's deuterium. And I believe Enterprise needed it after it was damaged severely in the Romulan minefield a couple episodes back. But basically, it's the same story. A farming, mining colony is in trouble for marauders who steal their harvest, um, leaving the colony with, leaving them with next to nothing, basically. Um, and then all of a sudden, a group of outsiders help the colony learn how to fight back against the marauders. Um, they learn with firearms as well as hand-to-hand combat techniques. So it says, I'm thinking, what makes this version of it Star Trek? Well, what was a little different, I thought, about this one was... Basically, the the characters, the lead characters, weren't they? Yes, they took a role in training the villagers on how to fight, but it was done a little differently to the point where instead of them leading the fight when the the marauders, or in this case the Klingons, showed up, they kind of took a step back. This episode felt very Star Trek to me um, in the way that they adapted it for this particular franchise. A lot differently than Star Wars did. What, and it wasn't really a big explanation of it. As most of you Star Trek fans know, there's the Prime Directive that's in place. That's basically the non-interference directive. You do not um, interfere with a growing society. And Archer talked a little bit about that with T'Pol. Even though this was a century before the Prime Directive, the Vulcans still had their own non-interference directive, which Archer brings up. But surprisingly, in this case, not only does Archer feel that that should be ignored, but so does T'Pol, um, it, because this isn't a culture. This is a, like a colony of, of people that are being abused by by these Klingon pirates, essentially. You know, so I thought that that was a really cool part is that they explored it from that angle, um, but also at the same time said, no, we have to let it go this time. We have to help these people or else they're not going to survive. So that was that was. Very fascinating. Go ahead. Yeah, I I agree, and I you know I I even if the prime directive had been in place, I don't necessarily know if uh, that would have been a violation because it, it's not Agreed. like you know these folks were a um, were unaware of other cultures and other races that exactly. were you know that essentially other cultures and other races that. You know, obviously they they uh, mine and process deuterium, which is used on starships. So they're yes. fully aware that that other cultures have, are, you know, or rather that other cultures are are warp uh, capable and and visit exactly. their planet regularly to to uh, you know to obtain deuterium. Yes. You know, and I and I thought that it was cool how the the episode started rather with the crew of the Enterprise calling upon these folks to um, to replenish their deuterium supplies rather than being sought out by by the you know this this alien race that uh, you know that mined the deuterium right exactly another interesting part I like that was different is they actually dismantled their colony and moved it you know I thought that was that was a unique twist on everything to kind of throw off the Klingons mm-hmm. and, and, and help them to prepare to get their perimeters together and their weapons ready and their tricks and, you know, pulling the strings so that they can trip over each other. I think that was, that was a really unique take on it that I, I didn't see that in the, in the star Wars episode. So that was pretty awesome on that end. Right. Right. And that was, you know, all of that 
kind of resulted from uh, one of T'Pol's lines about how the uh, the, the you know the um, the deuterium mining colony would not be able to fight back against the Klingons because the Klingons are warriors. So they had to resort to another method of of driving them away, and that was you know that was a, a bit of trickery. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So I think it definitely had the spirit of Seven Samurai there. It just did it differently, and like I said. The, uh, the Enterprise crew kind of took a step back and let the colonists take the lead in the fight while they kind of just stayed behind a rock and fired some shots as needed. But the, they, So the colonists really stepped up in this one, which was a little bit different as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Um, it, you know, it, as, you know, as you'll kind of hear in, in other episodes, um, you know, it, the, uh, the colonists or the, uh, you know, the deuterium uh, mining colony or the you know the the inhabitants of the facility uh do take a much more front and center uh stage to to the action rather than um the the heroes that we're used you know the the heroes that are the focus of our other two shows exactly um i thought it was a, a, a kind of a I thought it was a, a kind of a unique wink to the audience, to, you know, that are self-aware of the, the you know, what the, the plot of this Enterprise episode uh, is adapting, that that the number of Klingons that were terrorizing these folks was was the number, you know, there were seven of them uh, and not, you know, and not yeah. seven heroes. Mm-hmm. Which, if you're keeping count, I believe there were six of our Enterprise crew members involved in training and leading in the fight. Uh, so Archer to Paul. Trip, Mayweather, Hoshi, and Reed. Were there any others, Chris? No, I believe that that's it. I think really the only role Doctor Flox played in the episode was to give the one late woman the um, one of his osmotic eel or something, or at least he offered it. <laughs> that was about all. That was it. No, that would have been real. It yeah, would have been cool to see him down there, you know, with a, a thing around his head and you know, a gun as well, you know. But I guess that was wasn't in the writing for this one. Sure, sure. Um, so my biggest concern with this episode is that we don't get uh, the name of the race of these folks that are that are processing this deuterium. It, it's kind of, honestly, it kind of seems like lazy writing that we don't even get a species name for them. What do you think? No, I agree with you on that. Every Star Trek show is when they introduce a species, um, they always have some sort of name, and you kind of learn a tiny little bit about the background of of them or some part of their culture. Uh, so that's that is kind of interesting that they they kind of left that out of this one. You know, maybe someday, who knows? Maybe a novel will follow up on it. We'll, we'll get some sort of non-canon name for them or something. But you're right, that was kind of sloppy. It's kind of like leaving out a star date when star dates are big parts of star Trek episodes. Sure. Sure. Uh, Oh, um, I guess, uh, you know, like we kind of hinted at earlier, you know, one of the side plots, uh, one of the side stories in seven samurai was one of the samurai kind of becomes romantically involved with one of the villagers. And I think the nod to that in the episode was, uh, the the relationship that de- developed between Trip and the young boy. Yes, exactly. Yes. Now they had the they had the woman there, but they just shifted her role a little bit, so they turned it mm-hmm. into almost a father son or big brother little brother thing instead. Which you're right. Yeah. I noticed that too, and that was a really cool way to kind of twist it up and change things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Another difference that I noted was that uh, all of the Klingons, you know, they withdraw from the planet um, and they give up their pursuit of the deuterium, saying that they can get it anywhere at, and that uh, this deuterium isn't even fit for a garbage scow, which is, of course, a nice little nod to Klingon culture. And then, of course, and then, uh, you know, in, in this adaptation, um, there were no fatalities on either side of the battle. Exactly. Yes. Not one, not one single person. Okay. So Chris, before we move on to the next episode, do you have any final thoughts on Marauders? Um, just, I, I think, I thought it was a very interesting episode, you know, until you and I started discussing um, the plot for this episode of, of Captain's Logs and Lightsabers, I never realized that this was attached to the Kurosawa film. So it made it very interesting for me to watch it and look at it from a different lens than I have since I started watching it when I was in my early 20s. 
So thank you for that very much. It was a very interesting episode to get into compared to the other stuff. You know, and I'm, I'm sure you'll notice as we continue our discussion here, you know, that uh... – the, the plot of Seven Samurai has been you know, incredibly influenced. So the second thing that we watched uh, for this episode was uh, season two, episode 17 of the Clone Wars called Bounty Hunters. Uh, the, you know, the basic plot of this one involves our three main Jedi, Anakin, Obi-Wan, and Ahsoka, as they are sent to the orbit of the planet Felucia to figure out why one of the medical stations in orbit of the planet had lost communication with the Republic. So, you know, basically the way this kind of gets set up is as, you know, as our heroes uh, reach orbit of Felucia, they're attacked by vulture droids and their ship is shot down and they crash land on the planet Felucia. All right. So that's where our story really kicks off. You know, as far as our Seven Samurai adaptation, what similarities did you notice, Chris? Well, definitely um, the, the pirates set up, obviously. Um, and then there was a crop that these pirates were taking. I believe in this case, the drug was called Silum. I think is the, the way it was. I heard it. And then you had the bounty hunters coming in to help protect the crops, similar to Seven Samurai, where they hired the Seven Samurai, basically, to, to help protect them. That these bounty hunters, there were only four of them, and there weren't a whole lot of bounty hunters to fight the pirates. So then that's what led into the similarity of, okay, you got these strong leaders, these strong characters with training, martial arts training, if you want to call it that, and started to teach them how to use blasters and how to use basic sticks and how to fortify the community. So, and then the thing in this one was, the similarity was, is the Jedi took the lead with the bounty hunters to fight the pirates and then the villagers would come in with their staffs or whatever they were using to try to protect it on their own the number seven again definitely comes up because you had the four bounty hunters and then you had the three jedi so that that was pretty cool the perimeter fence that they set up was a big similarity to seven samurai because i know that they set up a perimeter in that movie as well so that was really interesting. What about your thoughts? I I agree with everything you said. You know, those are all very, you know, very similar story beats. So once we kind of get to the climactic battle in Seven Samurai, one of the things that's introduced that has it has deadly consequences for our samurai is the is the introduction of firearms. And there was a little bit of a nod to that in the Clone Wars. That would be the tank that was piloted by Hondo, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh! I was just I was just going to have a little side note about something that I thought was really cool to tie it into the movie was when you were watching it, did you notice that there was a little bit of Japanese sounding music at different points throughout the episode? A few notes here and there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I did notice it. And I, I'm sure that was absolutely intentional. Uh, Kevin Kiner, the composer for the Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels is, you know, is an absolute genius when it comes to that stuff. So that was, you know, that was fully, that was fully on purpose and, you know, good catch. Yeah, I didn't notice that in Marauders and I didn't notice it in the Mandalorian episode either. So that was unique to Bounty Hunters, which was really cool. So I just wanted to make sure I slid that in there real quick. <laughs> <You know. laughs> yep, yep. Good catch. I I like it. So, you know, it's kind of, as far as uh, this episode being or feeling like something from Star Wars, as as with all good Star Wars, you know the initial mission, um, uh, what our characters are sent to accomplish, changes throughout the course of the episode. So one specific instance of what I mean essentially is in the Last Jedi, where we have Rose and Finn sent on their mission to Canto Bight. That you know they're sent on the mission to get the Master Codebreaker. In addition to you know trying to complete that mission, Rose introduces Finn to the Fathiers, the the space horses that are uh, part of the races on Canto Bight, and how they are abused by their jockeys and abused by their caretakers. You know, of course, that, you know, that uh, becomes their alternate mission. It's different than what they were sent to the planet to initially accomplish. That's exactly what happened here in this episode of The Clone Wars. Uh, mm-hmm. The... You know, our heroes are sent to find out what happened to the medical station, but as a result of the attack, uh, they crash land on Felucia, which kicks off everything. Exactly, yes. 
you know, of course, every episode of the Clone Wars has that initial fortune cookie, you know, that appears in blue text at the beginning of every episode. But there's always a message deeper, you know, inside the inside the episode. Tell me what you think here. What I think the lesson was the the whole sequence where Ahsoka rescues Serapis from the tree that he was cutting down. Serapis is the little alien in the mech suit. Um, you know, so he uses the the saw blade in his mech suit to cut down the tree, but then his mech suit isn't able to hold up the weight of the tree, and Ahsoka, you know, Ahsoka leaps into action and, and knocks him out of the way, uh, which causes Serapis's suit to malfunction. And then we get a, a look at what Serapis really looks like, and he's this tiny little diminutive alien, and, you know. And he says to Ahsoka, "I know I don't look so tough." And you know, her her response back to him is, "You don't have to look tough to be tough." Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So I, thinking about that, it kind of reminds me of my dad. Um, my dad is only five foot five, and that's pretty much my size as well. Um, he, he's an ex-Marine. He doesn't look like it. He just, he just looks like a, a short, small kind of guy, but a lot of people tend to get nervous around him. There's a demeanor about my dad, um, and the kind of tone he looks and the kind of looks he uses. They usually, over the years, I've watched people actually back down from him because they get intimidated despite his size. And he doesn't mean for that to happen. It just, it's just the yeah. way it comes off with him, you know? So that's kind of what I'm thinking about in Ahsoka's message. And the message makes perfect sense. You don't have to be seven foot tall with a big muscular build and the deepest voice on planet earth, you know, to come off as being tough. You know, it's, you know, toughness comes, I guess, from within to some degree and, and just how you get yourself through different things and, and with through courage. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great example, and and you are right on the nose with that. Um, and I guess you know, for the the last thing that I noticed that's really classic Star Wars, uh, you know, at least as far mm-hmm. as, uh, at least as far as Star Wars television is concerned, how we see, you know, essentially what are background aliens from. Uh, you know, pick pick a scene in one of the movies, and you see a, a, a cool-looking background alien. Well, some of those are thrust forward in, you know, in, in in to be the the um the front and center of this episode. So you know, we've got the the native Felucians. Yeah. Um, we've got the mm-hmm. pirates who are Weequay. Um, I believe the first mm-hmm. appearance of a Weequay was in, uh, in Return of the Jedi in Jabba's palace. Yeah, I think you're right about that. All right, so what uh, what did you notice that was different? Uh, well, definitely the tank part. <laughs> no laser tank in Seven Samurai, um, but that was a li- that was a little bit different. Um, the way that uh, the main characters came into the story was different because, like you said, they were trying to see what was going on with the medical station around Felucia, which was destroyed, and then they got attacked by the vulture droids. So there would have never been any story. Um, that actually happened if that wouldn't have happened. So it was different from Seven Samurai because the villagers actually sought them out, I believe it was, or at least hired them to be the, the, high, the tough guys to help help them learn how to, to defend their colony or their farm. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and also, you know, the Felucians had first hired the bounty hunters, and they hired all four of the bounty hunters, but it wasn't until our Jedi crash land on the planet and become involved in the fight that we get our seven. Exactly. Yep. So, yeah, so a nice little way of the, the characters all kind of came about in a different way for this one. They, 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 they wrote it up very nicely for this episode. Yeah, I think so. And um, I guess the final difference I noticed, as we kind of discussed with the Enterprise episode Marauders, uh, there were no fatalities in throughout the course of that episode, but we did have some of the pirates die. However, Hondo, the their leader, withdrew from the conflict. And, and basically, you know, his reasoning for withdrawing from the conflict was that uh, this quest for the Cilium was no longer profitable. Mm-hmm, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So he survived to live another day, and then we got to see him later on down the line. So it's yes. good that they didn't yeah. kill him off. <laughs> oh, I, I I agree. I mean, Hondo is easily one of my favorite characters from the Clone Wars. That wasn't his first appearance in the show, right? 
I think it was Obi-Wan who said that they have a history together. Yeah, I think you're right. And of course, we know that Hondo survives into the sequel trilogy era because he's the one that uh, sets us out on our mission in the Millennium Falcon when you visit Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. He is he has started a business up on the planet of Batuu, and he's the one that gives you the mission to retrieve the coaxium in the Millennium Falcon. Oh, that's fascinating. Oh, wow. I didn't know yep, that. Yep. I'm learning a whole bunch of new stuff from you. That's wonderful. You yep, know? Yep. So, yeah, um, it's, it's good to know that Honda survives. That's great. Uh, one last thing to definitely bring up is, again, the, the relationship kind of thing. There, there was no romantic relationship that happened. I guess the closest thing that I, I kind of saw was the, the – I guess – I don't know if she was the lead bounty hunter or not, what her, what her name was. But she was the female character in that role. Um, and she seemed to have very be, develop a very close relationship, or at least respect, with Anakin and Obi Wan. Uh, so I guess without they just kind of modified it without the romantic piece this time mm-hmm, around, mm-hmm. Um, where it was more of like a, a, a collaborative um, respect for each other. I guess the way you could look at it. Right, right, right. I agree. Um, yeah, that was that was a cool little. So the final episode that we're going to talk about is. Season 1, Episode 4 of The Mandalorian, called Sanctuary. Uh, this is our final adaptation of The Plot of Seven Samurai. Uh, what uh, what similarities to The Plot of Seven Samurai did you notice, Chris? Oh, definitely, again, being back on a farm where people were had a, a main product that they were selling. Um, in this case, I couldn't tell what exactly what it was. It looked like it was just a mix of different crops or like those blue fish that they were harvesting out of those ponds or whatever they were. So again, that that basic similar setup story. You got the band of marauders that comes in and and steals all of their stuff, and then by the time harvest comes, they don't. They basically have nothing to sustain themselves. So um, there are these two gentlemen who see the Mandalorian and feel that maybe he can teach them because of what Mandalorians are all about in their history. Maybe help teach them how to fight against these marauders. So the Mandalorian finally goes to their colony, sees what's going on, and he does train them. And then once again, a battle ensues. People die. There's another romance that kind of falls into line. I think that actually the romance in this particular episode was probably the closest to the Seven Samurai plot out of the three episodes that we watched. But basically, in the end, they they save the day and drive off the pirates and... They live happily ever after. From that point. That's how I kind of saw it. How about yourself, Jonathan? Uh, yeah, I, I think you know you, you kind of hit the main points. I would say that, like you know, like we found in Seven Samurai, but it wasn't introduced until pretty far into the movie. The firearms that kill a couple samurai and villagers in the movie, uh, you know, our our hidden danger, our our trump card in this episode was the ATST, the the chicken walker. I like how the ATST is introduced early on in the episode as our, you know, as our trump card, as our hidden danger. That becomes kind of the the central piece to defeating these raiders is is, you know, getting rid of the ATST and taking it out of the battle. Right, exactly. And they did that in a very creative way too. I thought that them digging out the the puddles and ha- and luring it into stepping in there was really cool. Uh, it seemed like the ATSD kind of was cognizant of it to some degree at first, and then I was like, "Well, what's it going to take for it to move forward?" And she finally got it moving, and it just collapsed. It was great. Yeah, that that really built a lot of tension because their yeah. entire plan re- revolved around getting rid of the ATSD, exactly. and then it was it. You know, it hung around in the battle a lot longer than it should than they expected it to. Yes, exactly. you know, my thought was is did they did they anticipate that that, that there might have been a some sort of booby trap, or was it just it didn't decided they just decided not to move any further until they absolutely had to. That's what kept playing in my mind throughout the, mm-hmm. while I was watching that. Is like, what's the motive? Did somebody find out something? You know, but I guess not because they ended up tricking it in. Sure, sure. And, you know, there's there's some echoes there of the Enterprise episode, you know, because mm-hmm. it, you know, it, it, it did involve uh, springing a trap. Yes, exactly. 
Um, I guess, and the other, you know, the other major similarity that I noticed was, uh, you know, the Mandalorian and, and Cara Dune, they helped uh, teach the villagers, the farmers, how to build fortifications and barricades around the village as well, just like in, in both uh, Seven Samurai and uh, the Clone Wars. Exactly. Yes, you're absolutely right about that. Um, also, it's um, looks like Mando and Kara actually seem to carry out a raid on the Clatoonian camp. Um, inciting them to attack the village, uh, which is definitely something you saw in uh, in Seven Samurai, but you didn't see it in Marauders. In Marauders, the Klingons just showed up to a quiet colony and then just kind of randomly started getting attacked one one bit by bit. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a very good point, Chris. I I had almost forgot about that. And then of course they had the romantic relationship again with the Mandalorian and Omera, and you had the little child in there. Um, in this case, it was a girl. Um, kind of similar to the boy in Marauders, but um, at this that they just they he realized that that was not the place that he wanted to be. He wanted to leave the child there, but, but which might have been really good for him. But at the same time, he knew that that wasn't the life for him. I guess for him, his life's out in the stars. What did you notice that was different? What what story beats did you notice that were different from Seven Samurai in this episode? So basically in the episode, the Mandalorian and the child arrive on Sorgan to seek shelter and essentially hide from the members of the Bounty Hunters Guild after the fight that they had had in the previous episode on, on Navarro, um, which is different, obviously, from, say, Marauders, because Marauders Enterprise was coming to get deuterium to get stuff to help fix the ship, where they weren't there trying to run and hide from anybody. Same thing with... Um, with the uh, with the like, bounty hunters, with bounty hunters, they kind of showed up there accidentally because they were shot down. So the whole entrance of the action and the furthering of the plot were totally different from um, what we saw in this episode, and basically from Seven Samurai. Mm-hmm. And, and really, you know, um, we don't actually get seven. We get essentially we get two. We get yes. the Mandalorian, and we get Cara Dune. Exactly. Well, yeah, and also it, it seems to be different because no villagers or any of the heroes actually died during this episode. Ironically, this episode seemed a little less violent than Bounty Hunters. <laughs> I can't tell you what were there, three or four people with broken necks in that episode? <laughs> you know, I, I I had forgotten about that episode. I hadn't watched it in years. And when I saw oh, yeah. it, I was like, holy crap. You know, they were. This was pretty uh, for being a half hour on Cartoon Network. It was pretty uh, graphic in its own way. Sure, sure, and I think I, I think you can get away with that a little yeah. bit more in, in animation than you do in live action. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Generally speaking, streaming television doesn't have the same rules as broadcast television, but because this show airs on Disney Plus, which is meant to be family friendly content, I, I'm sure they really, mm-hmm. you know, they. Uh, were hyper aware of how much violence they wanted to show in live action. Mm-hmm. Sure, absolutely. What did you notice in this episode that made it feel uniquely Star Wars? Well, definitely what I kind of pointed out was the cantina scene. Um, that's basically, that's Star Wars right there. Anytime you see a, a cantina scene, it always harkens back to the, uh, to A New Hope and that fun cantina sequence that we have there with Luke and Obi-Wan and Han Solo and Chewbacca. You know, so obviously that was a little nod to that, definitely. Um, I also saw a lot of uh, plenty of cute moments for, with the child. Um, you know, it was in a little crib it looked like somebody had made for it. The little girl was, was feeding it and playing with it. The kids were also laughing when the child was just being the child and put, you know, the frog <laughs> in his mouth and was starting to eat it. But it was really nice that he let it out. So that way the kids didn't think it was like he was being like dark or anything. They just maybe thought he was playing around, you know, so <laughs> can't go wrong with, right, right. with the child, you know? Right. Oh yeah. I mean, he is the internet darling, of course. Exactly. Yes. One thing I noticed is that again, more background aliens from Return of the Jedi take front and center and there are, they are the raiders that attack our village. Yes. Yes. You're right about that. Okay, so we've kind of discussed every episode individually and how, you know, how they felt like Star Wars or Star Trek, mm-hmm. how they were similar and different to The Seventh Samurai. 
why don't we take a few minutes and compare the episodes to each other instead? So basically what I saw that they have in common uh, is each episode took the basic framework of the plot of Seven Samurai and they adapted it in ways that fit into the narrative of the overarching story that the writers uh, seem to be trying to tell for the different shows. Um, you know, so like we said about the, the prime directive um, kind of piece being in, in that episode. It was it was a little different from the the movie itself, but it was interesting how they kind of worked that in. They gave it a Star Trek the Star Trek flavor, I thought specifically with that, and the fact that it was the Enterprise crew that chose to go there and actually help them. They didn't just happen to find themselves there by by circumstance, you know. So, but so I think it was a neat way that they kind of twisted the plot and made it their own, which was very fascinating. I agree with what you said, Chris, you know, how every every episode that we watched found a way to use the the plot of the Seven Samurai as a as inspiration, as a jumping off point and how they were able to fit this, you know, this that particular episode into the the overarching story that each series is trying to accomplish. With Enterprise, you know, it's a continuation of the you know the crew's mission to uh, make contact with other civilizations in the galaxy with star wars and, and specifically with the bounty hunters episode how this you know how you know how their mission started off as uh being critical to the republic to restore uh or rather to find out what happened to the medical station you know of course that plot is integral to the the overall clone wars and then of course because the mandalorian was intended to be serialized storytelling the the reason why we find ourselves on the planet sorgan in the first place is because of what happened at the end of the previous episode where you know mando is looking to escape from the bounty hunters guild uh and he you know they find the planet sorgan to be essentially to be backwater and not you know not too much civilization they think they can hide out there successfully without attracting too much attention now what differences did you notice as far as between star trek and uh the two episodes of star wars that we watched so my thoughts are about the crew of enterprise um they're continuing their mission to make contact with new species um, different civilizations when they need to make a stop at the planet uh, to get more deuterium. Um, so th th there's an overarching mission. It's something that's still going to continue. So, you know, they, they have this real quick stop. They help these people and then they move forward. And that's kind of like that with basically all of Star Trek. It, it's kind of represented in that way. They get involved in a situation, they complete the mission, and then they move on. You know, it didn't it in the end, the story isn't something that's going to be overarching that's going to impact them for the rest of their mission. You know what I mean? Um, they just they kind of did what they had to do and moved forward. Star Trek Enterprise came several years before the the new obsession with serialized storytelling. You know, it still felt very much like the Star Trek that we experienced in the TNG era. Exactly. Yeah, and then it wasn't really, it really wasn't until season three that Star Trek Enterprise developed its serialized component where we, you know, we told the story of... The Zindi. Yes, the Zindi arc. So yeah, it really wasn't until season three of Star Trek Enterprise where we got the Zindi plot and how that was all serialized, how one episode built upon the previous one. Right. I mean, I guess, you know... Prior to the Zindi arc, I guess we had a little bit with the Sulaban. Yeah, we had a little bit with the Sulaban. Deep Space Nine obviously brought along a, this, a lot of the serialized storytelling even before the stuff with Enterprise, with uh, the, the different uh, story arcs. And especially in the end of the seventh season leading into the series finale, that was definitely a nice serialized arc that went on for, what, ten episodes? And then even Voyager had a little bit of serialized storytelling when most shows didn't. Um, if you look back at the second season, the whole Kazon arc with Seska and Kala, you know, they, were, they had the, the Kazon episodes specifically with that arc, but then they also interweaved the story into other standalone episodes, which was always really cool, which I loved at the time. Um, you know, so definitely seeing a lot more of that starting to happen up now, you know, 
So yeah, we didn't see a whole lot of that back in Enterprise's day, you know. So it doesn't it makes perfect sense that it that this episode didn't really kind of show any impact on the rest of the story, I guess is how we could say it. Mm-hmm. Which of the three episodes that we watched, Chris, did you feel had the best setup for the Seven Samurai plot? I believe it was the Mandalorian episode. And the reason for that is is that they were basically on this, you know, this primitive planet with the, the with this kind of farming harvest you know they had the, the touch of the love story that seven samurai had it had the basic plot where they were teaching the villagers how to fight with uh not with the with the, they had the guns and they also had the, the the basic stick fighting things of that nature I, I thought marauders was was a little bit different in a way in terms of the, the characters taking a step back so that episode didn't really feel overall arcing completely with seven samurai and then the romance piece wasn't there as well right bounty hunters i think that the story happened kind of it happened really kind of quick <laughs> like it didn't so they kind of had to cram a whole lot of stuff in at once the similarity was that there was a crop this time like the, the, the drug similar to the farm crops that they have in in seven samurai um, but like I said, I think that the Mandalorian episode kind of set it up the best. Yeah, I agree with you as well. That was my favorite part, uh, you know, basic framework for the plot of seven samurai. You know, I'm, you know, this new TV revolution that we're in with, you know, with, uh, everything being serialized is, I, I don't know. I'm kind of a sucker for serialized television and, and consistent narratives. Sure. Uh, I, I like how, you know, we get that lead in to, the sanctuary episode of the Mandalorian, uh, because essentially because of the events of the previous episode, the sin where, you know, the Mandalorian and, and the child have to fight their way off of the planet Navarro. We get that wraparound of the assassination attempt that was foiled by Kara uh, to take out the child. Right. I know you had mentioned, uh, you know, when you were talking about the Clone Wars episode that because it was so short, they had to cram a lot into such a short period of time. You figured, you know, they had 22 minutes to adapt and tell their story. Exactly. Yes. I mean, they, but I think they did a really good job at bringing the overall story arc in. You know, again, they had mm-hmm. they had the, the, the crop. They had the pirates. They had the, the seven people that that trained the villagers. With advanced technology and with basic technology, you know, Anakin kind of being the leader to everybody. Uh, they even they they changed up the romantic story, so even that was there. You know, so even though it was more of a respect, mutual respect thing rather than love. You know, but it, I mean, they they did a lot to bring the basic. Basically, that episode in twenty two minutes was just the basic story. Like if you would write down a summary on paper or in a paper, you know, or kind of like what we're doing here on our show. You know, so, yeah, so that's basically what it felt like to me. It was, it was just a real quick summarization of the story. Sure. Just a couple moments ago, I had you pick an episode that you thought was the best setup for the plot of Seven Samurai. But I want to pick your brain a little bit more. And, and do you have a favorite of the three episodes we watched? I actually, maybe it's just me being biased because I'm a big Trekkie, but I, I love watching Marauders and looking at it through a different lens than I've ever looked at it before. And I like, I think what I like that because what was different about it from the other two episodes, like I said before, was the Enterprise crew stepped back. You know, they, they did the training, they encouraged them to fight and protect themselves. But when it came down to it, they were just, they were just supporting them if they, if they needed to, you know, they actually, these people actually became independent from the get go rather than in the Mandalorian episode or in the Clone War episode where they kind of took all their lead they took from the, the lead characters, depending, regardless of however many it was. You know, so that's what I liked about Marauders is that they, they, the secondary characters took that lead, and it's, that's what made it kind of fresh and different, plus the, the non-interference directive that I've talked about the most. I thought that was fascinating. You bring up some great points, Chris, and, you know, going into our recording, I wasn't prepared to choose a favorite, but you convinced me that, you know, I, I, I'm prepared to agree with you. I think Star Trek Enterprise carried it out best just because of what you said, you know, the, the crew of the Enterprise taught the deuterium miners to, you know, to be able to defend themselves and take care of themselves where you know, Archer was talking to the leader of the colony where he says that if you, you know, that there's that saying on earth where he comes from, that if you give a man a fish, 
he'll eat for a day. If you teach that same man to fish, he'll eat for the rest of his life. Exactly. Yes, that was the perfect line for them to put in there because, and it was executed beautifully in the episode. Yeah, I I agree with you. And um, like I said, I wasn't prepared to to select one episode, but you've convinced me. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, it, 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 they, I'll be honest with you though, all three episodes were wonderful. They were extremely entertaining to compare and contrast while watching them and doing it with you. You know, it was a real blast, and you know, it makes me want to go and watch. Watch Seven Samurai now, just to kind of put it all together into you know perspective of everything. So yeah, so thank you for that. It was just, I'm glad you suggested this as a topic for our episode. It was a lot of fun doing the research. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, and it, it's good. Like you said, it, it it was it's good to revisit all of the yes. you know the episodes and and watch them in that context. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. All right. So I think that's going to do it for episode two of Captain's Logs and Lightsabers. We greatly appreciate you tuning in yet again to listen to our episode. If this is your first time listening to Captain's Logs and Lightsabers, we invite you to go back and listen to our first episode where Chris and I kind of go over what, you know, what makes us Star Trek fans, what makes us Star Wars fans. And we get into a little bit of our favorite pieces of music and our favorite characters from both franchises. The theme music for our show was composed for us by Chip Kramer. You can find him by searching Chip Kramer on SoundCloud. Uh, There also will be a link to his SoundCloud profile in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to the show on Twitter, you can find us at Logs and Lightsabers Pod, all spelled out. If you go on Facebook, search for Logs and Lightsabers Pod. Or if you want to email the show, you can reach us at logslightsaberspod at gmail.com. If you'd like to reach out to me personally, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook by searching at Just a Disney Geek. How about you, Chris? You can find me on Twitter. Just go to Twitter, type in at Chris Stow, S-T-O-U-G-H-1. You can also find me on Twitter and YouTube. I have a YouTube channel called Pittsburgh's Trek Chat. On Twitter, you can go to at PGH Trek Chat. You'll find me there. On YouTube, just type in Pittsburgh's Trek Chat. That'll take you directly to my channel. My email that you can use also to get in touch with me is Christopher Stow, S-T-O-U-G-H, lsw at gmail.com great and then also if you'd like to connect with geek news now the uh the network on which you found this podcast you can reach out to them on twitter at gnn underscore home facebook just search for geek news now or if you'd like to connect with gnn on their website it's www.geeknewsnow.net. We'd appreciate any and all feedback that you're willing to provide. Just reach out to us on any of those social network contact points and tell us what you think, whether that's suggestions for new episodes, what you liked about an episode, or what we can improve upon. We want to hear it. If you're an Apple Podcast user, our show and the entire GNN network would appreciate a five-star rating and review. I know. I know. You've probably heard that from countless podcasts, but it really is the best way to help our show reach more listeners and make us more visible to others. If you're not an Apple Podcast user, you can also help the show by subscribing to the feed, which will make sure you never miss an episode of this or any other show on the network. In exchange for your feedback and reviews, we would like to offer you some discounts from a couple partnerships that Geek News Now has. For the pen and paper RPG fans, we have a great offer from Metallic Dice Games, You can use the code GNN to take 10% off your entire order, including items that are already on sale. Go to MetallicDiceGames.com and shop for your RPG gaming needs. Secondly, if you have extra room in your closet or drawers for more geeky t-shirts, Ripped Apparel is offering 10% off on their site, except for the daily shirts. That promo code is GNN10. Their website is RIPTAPPAREL.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Captain's Logs and Lightsabers. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Live long and prosper, everyone. <laughs>